Good. Take your copy of God's Word. You have my pictures, brother? Put that first one up there. Some of y'all remember this. That is the most photographed fall in all of history, right there. You know who that is? Gerald Ford coming down. And that just, you know, that was the first of a number. And they always seemed to catch Gerald Ford as he was stumbling or falling. And that thing has been used uh, over and over and over again. Um, There's something about stumbling and about falling. When Deb and I were on our honeymoon, we we went on our honeymoon to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And uh, you got a picture of a server, I think, up there. We were, that's Cafe Dumont, by the way. That ends the service right there. Those are beignets. Oh, my stars. Down in the French Quarter in New Orleans. We were on our honeymoon, and we loved going. I, I grew up going to Gatlinburg. Loved going to the old hotel in Gatlinburg. Don't tell me you don't remember this. Well, we, we had gone several nights to the old dining room there because they served you family style. They had these huge trays like that that they would bring out. Would they just, you know, in bowls? While we were there, one night, uh, the waitress came out, and she had these huge tray, big group, all this bowls of food, and she tripped and dumped that all over that, living, uh, that dining room there. The people, the floor, the tables, everything. There's just something terrible about somebody stumbling and tripping and falling. Listen, I have, through the years, I have caught brides as they tripped and stumbled coming up the steps. I've caught them as they stumbled and were tripped, and the hut, you know, the new groom just standing there, he's, he, and I catch her and help her back, you know, get her down. I've watched pastors stumble and fall into the pulpit. I watched them stumble and fall out of the pulpit. I even caught two pallbearers one day. I was burying somebody. It was raining so bad, had been raining, and uh, two pallbearers carrying, putting the casket up, and their foot slipped. They were headed down into the grave, brother, and I (laughs) caught them as they stumbled and were headed into that hole. I want you to go to the 16th chapter of Genesis because you're going to see Sarah and Abraham stumble tonight. The 16th chapter of um, Genesis is a unique chapter. It's unusual because you get to peek into the tent of Abraham and Sarah and you get a picture of what's going on in their marriage, in their life, in their home, uh, in their family. You get this inside edition look. You know, you get to peek in there, and you get to see what's taking place, and the tragic part is this, there's somebody else in there. There is an unholy triangle in that tent. You're introduced to a person in the 16th chapter that you know about, but we've not been introduced to up to this moment, and uh, it is a female, and her name is Hagar. If you took Abraham and you put him in an Armani suit and you took Sarah and you put her in a um, Prada evening gown, because the devil wears Prada, um, you put her in a Prada evening gown and you put Hagar in a maid outfit, you have got desperate housewives of the Middle East right here. This is what it is. It's a mess. 
the whole thing, the whole chapter is a mess. And I'm going to give you something that I just uh, I picked up three additional points back there in the study just the last 30 minutes. Uh, when you come to this chapter, Hagar, in the end, is the only person in this chapter that's listening to God. So just tuck that away. She's the only one in this chapter that becomes obedient to God in what's going on. This is a mess. It is a situation. And let me just describe to you the situation. Abraham wants a son. He wants a child. You remember the bulk of chapter 15 was Abraham and God's discussion about this very thing. And here was Abraham, and he had already figured it out. He said, well, God, I've been following, you know, I'm 85 now. I've been following you for 10 years. 10 years ago, I came to this land. 10 years ago, you promised me the land. You promised me a son. You promised me a child. I don't have either one. It's been 10 years now. And I guess, you know, when it comes to a son, Eliezer, who was the servant in the house of Abraham, in the tents of Abraham, he says, I guess he's going to be like my surrogate son. He'll inherit everything. And God came to him and he said, that's not it. No, Abraham, you're going to have a son. I told you the Hebrew word literally means from your own inside stuff. In other words, genetically, he's going to be yours biologically, he's going to be yours. He's going to bear your DNA. In other words, the child, you're going to father the child. And so Abraham understands that, and he accepts that, and he's joyous about that. But now Sarah is still wondering what's going to happen in all of this. Now, I've just got to tell you what I think is going on, because you pick it up in verse in chapter 15, Abraham has moaned and groaned and sighed and been in the dumps and been in the depths of depression because he didn't have a child. Where's my son? Where's my son? Where's my son? I'm not going to have one. Now listen, let me tell you what that did for Sarah. What it did for her was this. It just made her feel more and more inadequate. I can't give him what he wants. He's not happy. He's not satisfied. He's always pining away about this child that he doesn't have. He's always talking about it. He's always sighing, and I know what the sighs are for. She's frustrated. She has a very low self-esteem. She's struggling with her self-worth at this point. And so now, in the midst of all that, she devises a plan. She's got an idea. Well, if you are going to be the father, if that child is going to come from you, then I have figured this out. You take my handmaid, Hagar, and you have a child with her. That was her solution. That was what she was putting forth to Abraham, this is how we solve this. I have found a loophole here. I've got a loophole and all of this stuff, and uh, this is what we'll do. Now listen, that was a very common practice in that day. That was not unusual. When Jacob marries Leah, and he thinks that it is Rachel, and he discovers it's not Rachel, you know that whole story too. Then he marries Rachel. Now he's got Leah and Rachel, but they each have a handmaid, Billa and Zilpha. And they bring, and Jacob has children by all four of them. 
So it was a very common practice in that day. It, it does not, now don't understand this to be that this was okay with God. It was not okay with God. This was not at all what God had wanted. And you say, well, why didn't God do something to him? Well, he's about to do something to Abraham. He's going, he's going to live in misery in that tent with two women. I'm going to tell you. And the same thing's going to be true for Jacob as well. But listen, God's still gracious to him. Have you ever sinned? Is God still gracious to you? Yes. So that's going to be her solution in this whole thing. Now, what I want you to see this evening is this. I want you to see that when our faith stumbles, our faith stumbles when, listen, when we come to the place where we confuse our way with God's will. Now, that's what's going to happen right here in this chapter tonight. Here is Sarah. She's going to get confused about this whole thing. She's going to get out ahead of God, and she's going to confuse her way with God's will in her life and for their situation. So now, let me just begin reading to you from chapter 16, verse 1. Now, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. In the Middle East, in this culture, that was, that was the greatest shame that a woman could have was that she could not bear a son. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So we're first introduced right there. So Sarah said to Abram, now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my handmaid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. And Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. Abram's wife, Sarah, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her handmaid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. Now, let me just stop right there. Let me give you the first thing that I want you to see, and it's this. We begin to stumble in our faith when we attempt to do the right thing in the wrong way. She's going to try to do something that is right here, but it is entirely in the wrong way. This is not at all what God had told them he was going to do. And I'm going to give you now a number of, uh, of things here. Let me give you a couple of points uh, down through this, through this passage. So just watch with me. Number one, here comes this expedient. She's going to do it in an expeditious manner. I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to do this my way, and I'm going to do it right now. She wasn't interested in God's timing. She wasn't, she wasn't really thinking about God's will. She thought she had figured this out and that this was how God was going to do it, and she wanted it done as quickly as it could be done. Let's go on and get him a child because we can't wait any longer. He's unhappy. I'm unhappy and I'm just not going to wait on God anymore. That's why after Abram had lived 10 years in the land, you see this whole thing right here? Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar the Egyptian. Here she is. She gave her to her husband, Abraham, as his wife. Now, let me just look at Hagar for a couple of minutes. Um, Hagar was, she's interesting in and of herself. Uh, her name is Hebrew, by the way, which means sojourner which is interesting because Abraham calls himself a sojourner. I don't know where she got the name from. I, I doubt she was named that down in Egypt. 
Uh, I, I almost suspect that Abraham and Sarah named her that, uh, but um, her name is Hebrew, and it means I'm just a sojourner in this land, just a, a fugitive or a foreigner in this land. Now, you remember where she came from. Abraham was out of God's will when he went down into Egypt. He got out of God's will going down into Egypt. He didn't trust God. He had trusted God all the way to Canaan. There was a famine there, and he decided, I've got to move my family on down here. If you remember, you go back, he had stopped praying. He went down into Egypt, and when he got there, things began to unravel. What happened was is that he was convinced that Pharaoh was going to find out about his wife, Sarah, that he was going to want her because she obviously was a beautiful woman. And he said, he will kill me to get you. So you just tell him that you're my sister. You remember the whole story? Well, he, he never touched her, I don't think. I think Scripture's pretty clear about that. He never touches her, and uh, he discovers because every time he goes to touch her, he gets zapped. And he figures out very quickly, this isn't this guy's sister, this is this guy's wife, and their God is just zapping me every time I go for her. And so he sends her back to Abraham, and he's given Abraham all of these flocks and all of these herds and all of these servants. That's where Hagar was acquired. In all of that stuff that Pharaoh gave to Abraham and then threw him out of the country, he said, just take it all and get on out of here. Uh, that's where she came from. She was an Egyptian and she was part of that that Abraham acquired when he was down there in Egypt out of God's will. Now, there's a principle here. The principle is this. Whenever you acquire things in your life, in your marriage, in your home, in your family, when you are walking outside the will of God, you may need to have a holy house cleaning. An amen goes right there. Amen. Whenever you get out of God's will, whenever you get away from what uh, God has directed you to do, when you get off and, and away from walking with him and following him, you acquire some things that you probably never think about. And you acquire these things, and in acquiring these things, when you get back into God's will, listen, Hagar had been there for about 10 years. This didn't happen immediately. This happened on down the road. After they got back into God's will, what they should have done was stop and go through all of this and just had a house cleaning here. There needs to be, in a lot of Christian homes, some stuff thrown in the trash instead of just lying around the house. It happens in 2 Chronicles chapter 29. Hezekiah comes to the throne, and he's going to clean out the house of God. If you've got a Bible, put your finger in Genesis 16. Go with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 29. 2 Chronicles, the entire book of 2 Chronicles, is about the destruction of the temple. It's destroyed in the last chapter. The whole of the book is about uh, the decimation, the destruction, the deterioration of the house of God in, in, the, uh, in Judah until it is ultimately destroyed. 
Now that's 2 Chronicles. You, you wonder, why do we have 1st, 2nd Kings? Why do we have 1st and 2nd Chronicles? Well, each one of these has a story. This whole of the 2nd Chronicles is about the temple of God. Hezekiah comes to the throne. In fact, let me just show you something. Uh, just take uh, your Bible. Go back to the 24th chapter of 2nd Chronicles. In the 24th chapter, 2 Chronicles, Joash comes to the throne, and he's going to clean out the temple. It's been left in very ill repair. He cleans it out, but I want you to see in chapter 24, verse 18, uh, I don't have time to go through all of this, they abandoned the house of the Lord. So there you pick it up in chapter 24, verse 18. They abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers. They served the Asherim and the idols, and the wrath of God came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this their guilt. You get to chapter 25, Amaziah becomes king. He did not, verse 2, he did not, he did right in the sight of the Lord, but look at this, yet not with his whole heart. You come on over into chapter 27, you come to Jotham. He did right, verse 27, chapter 27, verse 2. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, he didn't enter the temple of the Lord. He didn't go to church. That's okay. That's all right. I don't need to go to church. I know all that stuff. And then you come over here to Ahaz, and he was just a mess because he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He was so bad, there was not a king of Judah they could compare him to, so they just said he was, he was as idolatrous and as sinful as the kings of the ten northern tribes of Israel. Then you come to Hezekiah. Hezekiah becomes king. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. So you come to verse 16 of chapter 29. It says, so he sends the priests into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, and every unclean thing which they had found in the temple of the Lord, they brought out uh, to the court of the house of the Lord, and the Levites received it, and they carried it on out to the Kidron Valley. That's exactly what Abraham and Sarah should have done. They should have done that thing right there. They should have gone in and said, we acquired this stuff down in Egypt. We don't need this stuff. But they didn't do it. And it sat in their house for 10 years, unnoticed, unheard. Nobody paid attention to it. But one day, Satan used it as a stumbling block. That's as good a word for every couple sitting in this place tonight. You let the Lord's Holy Spirit deal with your heart about that. Now, let's look at Abram here. Look at Abraham. Now, I've looked at Hagar. There she is. Here's Abraham. Abraham was a good man. He was faithful to Sarah. We're never told that he was unfaithful to Sarah. Culturally, in the culture he grew up in, he could have been unfaithful, and it was entirely acceptable. He grew up with the pagans. He grew up in idolatry. That was a part of their worship experience was uh, immorality. And yet, coming out of Ur of the Chaldees, we are never told anywhere in Scripture when he was in Ur that he was unfaithful to his wife. He was faithful. wasn't like David wasn't like a number of other men in the Old Testament. He seems to have been a faithful man to Sarah. Culture could not influence him. 
Neither could the material things of life influence him. Do you remember when the king of Sodom came to him after he had recaptured all of the wealth that the four kings had stolen, remember, and all of the people? The king of Sodom comes to him and says, listen, you can keep all of the material, all the gold, all the silver, all the stuff you can have. Just let me have my people back. And Abram looks at him and he says, you can have it all back. I wouldn't take a shoelace from you. There's no way. I don't want anything you've got. I don't want the gold. I don't want the silver. I don't want the money. I don't want the money. You just take it all. It's yours. I don't want it. I tell you that to say this. Abraham was a man who could not be seduced by the culture or bought off by a king. He was faithful. And yet in this place, in this chapter, in this moment, the unbelievable is going to happen. His wife is going to convince him and persuade him to do what the culture could not get him to do, what the internet could not get him to do, what hooters couldn't get him to do. She was going to convince him what he should do, and that is essentially be unfaithful to her with her handmaid. Now, I want to tell you, that's something else that as couples we need to hear this evening. No one has as much influence on your life, men, than your wife. Now, your wife will question that, but that's the truth. And no one has as much influence on your wife than you do. The greatest influence in my life is my wife. The greatest influence in her life is the shoe store. No, is me. <laughs> now, let me tell you, what we encourage each other to do, what we entice each other to do, what we influence each other to do, what we coerce each other to do, what we suggest to each other to do, let me tell you something. We had better be very, very careful of how we encourage our mates in the marriage relationship. Uh, because we can encourage each other to do some things that are absolutely horrible for our marriage. So that leads me to the third thing, and the third thing is going to be this. It's going to be what happens in this whole thing. And that is this principle right here that I want you to see. He's going to listen to the voice of his wife. He's going, he's going to do what Sarah suggests. Now, I want to just tell you, just hang on for a little bit because I want to tell you, uh, this is as much Abraham's fault, if not more so. He is the spiritual leader. Sarah's not alone in this. He's the spiritual leader, and yet he's going to listen to what she encourages him to do when he knows this is not right. He's going, he's going in his faith, he's going to fall off into sin. Now, this is the principle I want you to hear about this. No experience with God brings immunity to future temptation or sin. That is, it makes no difference what your experience has been with God if you don't maintain spiritual vigilance, you'll fall into sin. You remember a guy called Noah who had an unbelievable experience 
of going through a worldwide disaster. Everybody was wiped out except for him and his wife and his three sons and their wives. And yet when he gets off of that ark, he plants a vineyard. And as soon as all of those grapes are ripe, he ferments some wine. He gets stinking drunk. And look at the sin he fell into. And it affected one of his kids really, really in a bad way. Remember Moses? Moses had been a murderer, uh, got his life right with God at the burning bush, and, uh, but later in life gets so angry that in a fit of anger, he doesn't do what God told him to do, and no experience with God even being at a burning bush preempted him from falling into sin again. What about David? David, who was a man after God's own heart. Here, here's David whom God had protected and watched and cared for as a shepherd boy, and then all the time that Saul was trying to kill him, and then all the time the Philistines came after him, all that God did in his life and invested in his life, he became king, he wrote psalms, and yet he turned around and committed adultery, and then on top of that committed murder. Then on top of that lied for a year to everybody about it. No experience with God immunes you or makes you immune from future sin. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and he says this, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No experience with God. Here's Abraham. God brought him out of Egypt. He saved his hide. He's blessed him now, even with fighting those four kings. All of that God's protected him, guarded him, cared for him, watched over him, and yet here he is. He walks off into this sin all over again. I can't tell you how to avoid sin other than one way. That is a constant being in God's word and prayer and leaning on Jesus. Every day, multiple times a day. Well, Sarah accomplished successfully what nobody else was able to get her husband to do. And I want to tell you something. It has ramifications down to this night. Down to this night. I saw just a blurb on the news today where the ambassador from Saudi Arabia had flown in, is meeting with Abbas and has offered Abbas $10 billion if he will sign Trump's peace agreement for the Middle East. I'll sign it. If, if, he doesn't have to give me $10 billion. Just one will do. Well, you've got ramifications. What I'm saying is this, is what happened 4,000 years ago, listen, is still bearing consequences tonight. We're still living with the consequences of that tonight. Let me give you the second thing. We attempt to do the right thing in the expedient way we wreck lives. Now, lives are going to be wrecked because of this. Just look at what happens beginning in verse 4. He went to Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. Now, this whole act right there in verse 4, you know it impacts the relationship of Hagar and Abraham. 
it, 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 it has an impact on their relationship. In fact, you're going to see that in just a moment. Uh, I'll just save that, but let me tell you, it's going to. But it impacts the relationship of Sarah and Hagar. Hagar finds out that she's expecting, and now what does she do? She's got an attitude about it. She feels like, well, I'm better than you are. She feels like that I'm the favored woman now. I'm the favored wife in this whole relationship. And she begins to act like it. And she, uh, she begins to turn on Sarah, her mistress. And it just devastates that whole house. Everybody is upset with everybody else. It wrecks relationships. In this whole thing, is, is, uh, as she turns on her, now Sarah's going to turn against her. She's going to turn against Hagar, and that's going to be awful. Look at this. The blame now shifts. That always happens. Verse 5, and Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done me be upon you. Abraham, this is all your fault. You've walked around here and you've pined and you've belly ached and you've cried about a child and you know I can't give you a child and you wouldn't leave it alone. You wouldn't leave it alone. And I felt miserable about myself and I gave you this. May this wrong that's been done to me be upon you. What do you think Abraham's thinking right now? Man, this is a joyous tent to be in, huh? What a happy place. What a happy home. We're here in happy home. Here he is. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord, now she's going to bring God, may God judge between you and me in this matter. And Abraham said what to his wife? Everything every man ever says when your wife gets mad, whatever you want, just whatever you want, what's going to make you happy here? Abraham said to Sarah, behold, your maid is in your power. You, you do what's good in your sight. Now he turns, the, the poor girl here, nobody asked her what she wanted in any of this. If you notice, nobody went to her and said, now, Hagar, what do you think about all this? How is this with you? Sarah turns on her. She has turned on Sarah. Now Abraham turns around and says, well, you just do whatever you want to do to her. So Sarah treated her harshly. She started in on her. And as she started in on her, the girl can't stand it anymore, and so she just flees. She leaves. She runs. Now, I don't have it. I wish I had sent him a map. But uh, the wilderness of Shur, if you can picture, you know what the, the, uh, the uh, Sinai looks like an inverted um, triangle. The wilderness of Shur is right up there in the top part of the Sinai. It's where you would come out of Israel across the top of Sinai to go into Egypt. Uh, it's right there in the top of that. She's in the wilderness. She's run about 150 miles. And let me tell you, I have traversed that area on a number of occasions, and I would not want to do it in anything other than an air-conditioned Mercedes bus that's loaded down with water. It's hot. It's arid. It's dry. There, listen... Uh, even today, there are jackals that are out there. There are panthers that are out there. There are all kinds of things that are out there, wild dogs that are out there. She's out there by herself. This is a girl. Think about this. This is a girl. We're not told her age, but she's obviously young. Here is a girl who is expecting a child, 
150 miles out into the wilderness by herself, and in her womb is going to be a son who will be born, who will become the father of all the Arabs, who will become ultimately the father of an Arab named Mohammed, who becomes the father of Islam. Let me tell you, this is more fascinating than anything you'll find on TV. I promise you that. Now, that's what you, you just think about that. That's who's out there. That's where she is. She watched this conflict here between Abraham and Sarah. She was in the midst of that conflict. It was more than she could take. And that whole conflict, if you can imagine how terrible that is, tonight we're still watching the conflict from the descendants of Abraham through Ishmael and the, and the descendants from Abraham through Isaac. We're watching this whole conflict as it continues to take place. That's pretty wild. Pretty wild. Now, i got to give you something redeeming here, and here it comes. Let me tell you, God's redeeming Love reshapes wrecked lives. Now, their lives are wrecked. This is a wreck. This is a train wreck. She's out there now by this well in the wilderness of Shur, verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water. Now, I won't get into the debate, but there are many theologians who believe that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, There are most of the time... Barry, what do you think? You do? 90% of the time, I think it is. Uh, one of the great theologians, that, did you have Dr. Merrill at DTS? He does not think he is. And I never had enough nerve to tell him I did. So um, he was a church member at First Dallas. Dr. Criswell believed that it was. Dr. Merrill, who was just this brilliant Old Testament professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, he, he told me he did not think so. 90% of the time, I think it is. I do think this is tonight. I, I'm in that 90% tonight. I think this was the pre-incarnate Christ. And here's the interesting thing. This is the first time Jesus speaks to a woman at a well, but it won't be the last time. He comes to this woman at the well. And what he does there is that he ministers to her. He cares for her. He watches over her. She's going to name this place uh, El Ra'ah, El Ra'oi. She's going to name it that in Hebrew, the God who sees. He's watching over her. He's protecting her. He's guarding her. He's ministering to her. He's doing what a pregnancy center does for a lot of young girls that go there to that place. That's kind of interesting that that's what he's doing here. But this is what I want you to see. She's there because Abraham and Sarah, who worshiped the true and living God, were such a horrible witness. In their home, they were a terrible witness for God in that home, so much so this girl, I don't know that uh, she had begun to believe in God or not, 
but she'd been in that home for 10 years and she'd watched now this whole thing explode like this and be treated this kind of way. And she probably thinks, well, if this is what their God is all like, if they're followers of the truth, I want to get out of here. But now this is the goodness and the mercy and the grace and the love of God. He follows that girl. And before she can get into, before the gates of Egypt can slam her into eternal darkness, God appears to her. Jesus comes to her. And I want you to notice what what he's going to do. Watch what he does. He's going to ask her two questions here. This is fascinating to me. He comes and he says um, to her, uh, now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid. Isn't it interesting that he calls her that? In fact, let me tell you what he's doing. He's bringing her to face herself. She's coming face to face with herself here. Nobody else is around. Nobody else is here. But he's bringing this girl face to face with who she really is. And so he calls her by her name, Hagar, Sarah's maid. Watch these two questions. Where have you come from? Where are you going? Now, she answers one of them. She doesn't answer both. She only answers one. Where have you come from? She answers that. She says, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. That's where I've come from. And she doesn't answer the other question, I think, because she does not want to say where she's going. She's going back into Egypt. She's going to the only home she knew. She's going back into spiritual darkness. She's going back to where they worship beetles and cats and dogs and alligators and crocodiles. She's going back into spiritual darkness, back into bondage, because Egypt is always called the house of bondage. She's going back into greater bondage. She only thought that was bondage in Abraham and Sarah's tent. Let me. She's going back into greater bondage. But again, here is the grace of God. He catches up with her and he says, I want you to face yourself. Just look at yourself. Who are you? Where'd you come from? But more importantly this, where are you going? Where are you headed? Let me ask you that tonight. Where are you going? Do you know where you're going? Where are you headed? This concerns me all the time as I stand up to preach. All of those that sit under the sound of my voice, do you know where you're going spiritually? Are you headed in a right spiritual direction, in a healthy spiritual direction? Here's the the problem for most of us. We can't find enough time to get somewhere where it's quiet and where it is still, so that we can listen for God to talk to us. You know, he doesn't come and say, hey, tell me what that sorry Abraham did to you. He didn't do that. He doesn't come and tell, say, tell me what that horrible, terrible woman Sarah did to you. He doesn't do that. Where are you coming from? Where have you been? Where are you going? Where are you headed? Hagar, Sarah's maid. Do you know where you're moving toward? We can't get alone with God's word long enough. And listen, we we need to get somewhere quiet every day and let God speak to us, listen, about us. 
I think she wanted to talk about Sarah, and God wasn't going to let her talk about her. Was Sarah wrong? Yes. Was Abraham wrong? Yes. Did God still love him? Yes. Now, that ought to, we ought to be shouting about that. We need to hear what God has to say about us. Well, I need to get somewhere quiet where I can listen to what the Lord's got to tell me, all that's wrong with the church. No, why don't you get somewhere and let the Lord tell you what's wrong with you? Well, the Lord tells her to do this, two things. Now watch. The angel of the Lord said, return to your mistress. Here's the second thing, submit yourself to her. Now I am sure that Hagar thought, why do I have to do that? Why can't I go somewhere new? Why can't I start over somewhere else? Why can't I get somewhere where we, we can just start this whole thing all over again and I can forget that? Listen, let, let, me, let me tell you. Several things that I just feel like the Lord just said to me out of this passage uh, about this is uh, oftentimes when you're hurt, you want to run. We talk about that from time to time. Somebody was hurt in the church and they left and they went away, you know. You know, let me, let me tell you two things about this. God's putting her back into community. You do not heal well spiritually outside of community. There is a reason for the gathered body of Christ. We're not here just because we're all pretty. There's a reason for this. Hurts heal better inside of community. And the community he's calling her to go back to are the people who hurt her. I've just got to get out of that church. They've hurt, somebody hurt me in that church. I've just got to get out. Listen, it may be God wants you to go back into that place to that person you were hurt by. He says, I want you to go back and listen to this. I want you to submit to her. Ooh, stars in heaven. That's a tough one. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. That's the same thing God told to Abraham, right? The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He's cared for him. He'll be a wild donkey of a man. He sure is. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. Boy, that's called the Arab world tonight. And he will live to the east of all of his brothers. Look at this. Then she called on the name of the Lord. She came and she surrendered her life to the Lordship of God. She trusted in God, just as Abraham trusted in God. She, trust, she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees for she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore, the well was called Beer Laharoi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. 
Now, here's the interesting thing. She went back. She went back. She comes to know the Lord there. She puts her trust in the Lord. No thanks to Abraham and Sarah. But she puts her trust in the Lord, and she goes back. Now, I imagine that was a difficult thing. And we're not told how she was received back there. We're not told what she said or what she did. But in my study, I have two volumes of suppositions of Brunson. And in volume two of Brunson's suppositions, I will tell you what I think was said. I think she went back. And I think she went up to Abraham and she looked at Abraham and she said, I've met him too. And I just want you to know that Abraham, he not only sees you, he sees me. And Abraham, I want you to know he not only speaks to you, but he speaks to me. And Abraham, I want you to know this, he not only appeared to you, He's now appeared to me. And Hagar, this Egyptian Hamite, goes back to this Jew. And she has a testimony about God. And I think she shares her testimony about God with Abraham and Sarah. This was the first woman that God met at the well, but not the last. And that woman, too, will walk away with a testimony. Just bow your heads with me. Now, I don't know what the Lord's saying to you right now through all of that. But you know, there are a lot of us here that are couples tonight, that um, that's a strong word for us. The influence we have on each other and what very possibly is in our home that needs to be cleaned out. Somebody here tonight, listen, maybe like Hagar, tonight you're wondering, does God love me? Does he see me? Does he care for me? And the answer is, oh, yes, he sure does. He loves you. He cares for you. In fact, he cared so much for you that he went to a cross and he died for you. And then he just didn't end it there. He rose three days later so that you might know you have eternal life. And he comes and he offers that to you. He's there offering himself to Hagar. And he comes tonight and he offers himself to you. Would you just quietly stand, all of us standing, our heads bowed, just in a few moments of prayer. If you're here tonight and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you can do that right now, right where you're standing in your heart. You can simply pray and call on him. He'll hear you. Dear Lord Jesus, I call on you. I ask you to forgive me of my sins tonight. And I receive you as my Lord and my Savior.
be Lord of my life. Guide my life and guard my life. Father, with my mouth, I confess, Jesus, that you're Lord. I confess that you are Lord. And I believe that you died on a cross and that you were raised to give me eternal life and to pay for my sins. And I put my faith in you tonight in Jesus' name. Now, I don't know if you're here tonight and you just prayed that prayer, but if you did, I want you to come up to me after the service. Just tell me that you prayed that prayer. I'd love to share with you. I'd love to talk to you. I've got some information I'd like to put in your hand. Others of you tonight, I believe God's speaking to your hearts through this. God spoke to me all day long today through this passage as I worked on it, thought about it, just rehearsed it, and went over it. I believe God's speaking to us. There's a word here that will strengthen our marriages. There's a word here that will strengthen our lives. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence in this place. We sense that you're here. But beyond that, we know you're here because your word tells us that you're here. And we thank you for that. And we come this evening, Father, and pray that we have hidden your word in our hearts so that we might not sin against God. Amen.